Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. My name is Michael Crawford. With me, as always, my brother Jeff Crawford. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be back here and talking about more adventures. Absolutely. Um, This time in the most adventurous land of them all. (laughs) Quite literally. Quite literally, yes. Uh, You know, we were talking before. you, You were having some adventures in your own big backyard. This time we're heading into Disney's big backyard of Adventureland. Ah, yes. Adventureland's always one of my favorite places to be because I uh, I like the uh, the plants alone, the music. Yes, you 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 have a green a green thumb. I do. And it's do. it's a good place for it. Uh, the music, like you said, is mm. always always great top notch the food is is good as well it is it is i think between disneyland and disney world uh, it it's just a really a great place to be in has some of the best spaces uh, you know i think of disneyland i think of that tiki garden oh yeah and yeah. Y- you really can't beat that that is one of the number one greatest Disney places in the entire universe. So it's hard to beat places where you can sit around with tiki's, enjoy some good music, maybe have a little citrus swirl. We're going to talk about that. And uh, it's a, it's a fun place to be. And one of the uh, original sort of Walt era places to have fun. That's right. And it's uh, like so many of his places, uh, has a lot of roots in, in film. Yes, yes. We're going to talk about some of the roots of where Adventureland came from, where what inspired it to be a cardinal realm of Disneyland, and really pulled straight from the real world, absolutely. That's right. And as has become the tradition, take the Remember the Magic tour to honor the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World, we will go into Adventureland as it opened and even uh, add on Caribbean Plaza that opened shortly thereafter. That's right. And we also have a look at one of our favorite inhabitants of Adventureland. Talk about our little friend, the orange bird up there in the orange tree. See what he's been up to. See where he came from. Sounds like we have a lot to do. I know, so we better start the show rolling, as they say. Why don't uh, Why don't we see what Walt has to say?
had Al and Alma Malat, a husband and wife team of photographers, and they were all that we needed. Now the Malats operate entirely alone, no safaris, no guides. I don't think they even have a gun between them. The equipment they use is only cameras and courage. In preparation for the movie Bambi, Walt Disney and his team of animators aim to make their animal actors more realistic than any other animated project ever had to tell their story. In this pursuit, they often had animals at the studio to model for animators and collected wildlife footage to use for modeling purposes. Bambi was groundbreaking in its message of conservation and ecology in 1942, and according to Walt, all the wildlife footage also resulted in a quote, unexpected dividend. After studying at length, Disney and his studio directors realized that the animal footage itself was captivating in its own right. Contemporaries of Walt, husband and wife Alfred and Elma Malott, had met in Seattle and were married in Ketchikan, Alaska in 1934. There they owned a photography shop and would go on to film and give lectures on the subject of Alaska. It was at one of these lectures that Walt would come across the Malots, having become enamored with Alaska himself through the years. Walt hired the Malots to go to film Alaska and send back footage for him and his team to go through for ideas for content. As we discussed in episode 8, this was the genesis of both the True Life Adventures and People in Places series, but evidently the first footage back was so boring that Walt sent a memo back suggesting more seals! <laughs> Can we just talk about, I love the fact that Walt's like, I literally, I got tickets tonight to go see these people talk about Alaska. <laughs> literally, we're going to the, going to wherever you go, going to the museum tonight. To the hear symposium. The, people, yeah. the symposium about Alaska. <laughs> right. I got tickets. That's yeah. so funny. And uh, just shows, just like, just go film stuff and maybe we'll come up with some ideas. That's right. I know. Uh, Disney handed the reins of the project to trusted director James Algar, who had directed several segments in Bambi, as well as Fantasia. Winston Hibbler would work with the story and narrate, and the result was 1948's Seal Island. The Malat's work on this was stunning, especially considering the technology they had at their disposal, shooting with at most a six-inch lens. They had to get up close and personal to the seals and wait patiently for the footage they needed. This film, with its subject matter and 27-minute runtime, made Disney's distributor RKO pretty uneasy. They thought no one would be interested in sitting for the full film, so Walt had a friend show the film in their theater so it could be considered for the Academy Awards. When the film later won the Oscar for Best Short Subject, Walt reportedly came into Roy's office with the statue saying, Here, Roy, take this over to RKO and bang them over the head with it. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I think it's kind of understandable to understand Archeo's, you know, viewpoint. At this point, there were nature documentaries, but nothing on the scale of, you know, Walt Disney presents a nature documentary. This is a, a, a broad leap for them. Yeah, this is way more than like a newsreel or a, some kind of short subject you would squeeze in before a feature film. I mean, that's, a you know, 27 minutes of SEALs. You never know how what people are gonna how people are gonna react. Right. It was very groundbreaking at the time. Um, and this, of course, would be one of the major cracks in the RKO Disney relationship that would eventually lead Disney setting up the Buena Vista distribution to re release its own films, starting in 1953 
with The Living Desert, another true life adventure. And it's so funny that they would object since these, I mean, I believe these films went on to be popular and certainly won a lot of awards. Oh, yes. Yeah. To that point, uh, the True Life Adventures series would go on uh, with seven short subjects and six feature films, garnering eight Oscars in all. So uh, eight out of 13 received Oscars, which is yeah. pretty impressive. Uh, the Malots would go on to be involved in several of these projects, including Beaver Valley, Nature's Half Acre, Waterbirds, Bear Country, Prowlers of the Everglades, and The African Lion. Uh, now, The African Lion was a grand adventure for the Malots, spending three years in Africa. And some of this is documented in the episode Cameras in Africa on the Disneyland TV show. Here we see the Malots preparing to enter the Kruger National Park in South Africa, loading lenses and cans of food into their custom-built wilderness home and armored vehicle that was fabricated on the Disney Studio lot and shipped to uh, Africa. Wow. We see the Malots eating lunch in their truck on a small little table when a rhino approaches and Al simply goes up to the camera and starts rolling. Uh, this truck is so incredible. It came equipped with a dark room and facility enough for lodging, filming, cooking, and even had a camera tower that could be constructed at the top of the truck. It looks so cool, too. Well, now I'm wondering what happened to this. I know. Where's this kicking <laughs> it's, around? It's probably somebody's truck in Africa. Who knows? Yeah, probably. I mean, amazing. Uh, in an interview years later, Elma claimed that Al, quote, would have gone to Africa for free. And his enthusiasm is clear in the Disneyland TV segment. Enthusiastic or not, there was risk aplenty, and at one point, Elma was out in the field taking pictures when she was caught in a migration of 400 bull elephants. Uh, while Elma took refuge on a platform in the middle of the group, Al and a guide had to go out in the dark of night to get her out, and the group was stuck in the middle of the bull elephants for three days. That's when you need that armored truck, man. That's yeah, for real. Wild. Interestingly enough, the Malots were one of many husband and wife duos working on the True Life Adventure series. In fact, over half those who filmed these subjects were married couples. Hugh and Mary Wilmar, Lloyd and Catherine Beebe, Sarah and Fred Machinitz, and Herb and Lois Chrysler all braved the elements and sacrificed domestic bliss to shoot these wonderful films. Uh, but soon the Malots would be home and the True Life Adventure series would be drawing to a close. Disney would be forever changed using nature footage in all kinds of movies, leading up to a whole string of other movies, uh, such as our favorite, Charlie the Lonesome Cougar, and TV episodes such as Ringo the Refugee Raccoon, and other projects through the coming decades. I think of that scene in uh, The Love Bug where they use that little nature footage. It just, it just is in everything Disney does. Yeah, they would drop it in. They, they wound up having plenty of uh, B-roll sitting around, stock footage, that they could use in any number of projects just of squirrels being wacky or menacing cougars or whatever you can think of. Or albatrosses crashing into the ground. Oh, <laughs> most importantly, albatrosses <laughs> crashing into the ground. Always that. The True Life Adventures would also accomplish a goal that Walt had had for years uh, to educate in his films. And we see through the 40s and into the 50s, he seemed to be working with documentary subjects more and more and the true life adventures were a real cornerstone of that. I mean, he seemed really interested in kind of getting more serious in a way, but still having a narrative form. 
Yeah, you wonder where that took off because, I mean, you certainly see it as early as the war with, like, victory through air power being just a movie specifically to encourage, you know, um, air power, basically, in the military. And you wonder where he got this bug, where, where it really kicked off. Yeah, I mean, maybe he just didn't want, he wanted to do something different, you know, and wanted to have a, a different kind of impact. But I love this era of Disney when they're kind of work, the people in places and the uh, true life adventures. And then they, of course, start into TV and do all those serials that kind of have a historical bent to it. It's really interesting, um, the stuff they're working with. Right, right. And yeah, you see a through line. That's a good point with the TV stuff. Things like Davy Crockett and the Swamp Fox. And those were meant to inform as well as entertain. And the four corners of the Disneyland television show, you know, Adventureland and Frontierland and Tomorrowland, all were pretty informative in the way they went about things. Yeah, and of course, when Disneyland was being planned uh, from er very early on, a true life adventure would be planned to the right of Main Street, where Space Mountain is today. Uh, It was inspired by the African Lion, among other projects. One day, move up to the other side of Main Street and become the world-famous Jungle Cruise that anchored Adventureland as one of the most prominent attractions on opening day. As the story goes, Walt originally intended for the Jungle Cruise to feature live animals, but was talked out of it. That would have been interesting. Yes. At that time period. Exactly. In that place and in that time, it would be very interesting. Uh, Disney would continue to consider conservation and ecological messaging. And and, and I should have mentioned earlier, the uh, Charlie, the lonesome cougars of the world, uh, preached that, that lesson as well. But uh, particularly with the land development in Florida, uh, which eventually led to Disney's Animal Kingdom's opening in 1988. And when they opened that, they cited, among other influences, Walt's fascination with animals and conservation uh, that was manifested in the True Life Adventure series. So it's it's always kind of close. Uh, you know, it gets brought up a lot. Well, yeah, and especially since during this era, you still had Roy E. Disney around. And he kind of cut his teeth doing a lot of these nature things. It's it's funny this has come up because recently I've been going through a lot of my old videos and trying to, you know, conserve them and get them all digitized and everything. I came across Ringo the Refugee Raccoon, which was one of our favorites, you know. And as you said, it's sort of, if, if there's a villain in that, it's development because it's, you know, construction crews that drive him from right. his home and everything. And also that was directed by Roy E. Disney. So oh, wow. he was really involved in these films. And then by the time that Animal Kingdom comes around, he's uh, such a highly placed executive in the company that he was kind of that connecting tissue. And he would appear, you know, in DVD supplements talking about animals and in a lot of the Lion King stuff, he would be involved. So there was definite through line throughout uh, that period. Ringo the Refugee Raccoon is a great uh, example of the kind of oily rags aesthetic of the uh, late 60s, early 70s. Just like a <laughs> bucket of oily rags. And, you know, yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Anyway, 
in 2008, Disney Nature would also be founded to produce a new generation of nature documentaries for families and has done so ever since. As for the Balots, uh, they would begin to go back to a quiet life they knew before Walt Disney came calling. They did shoot some scenes for Hitchcock's The Birds, uh, but their focus became on writing. And they would write some s- several books, including The Story of the Platypus, The Story of an Alaskan Grizzly Bear, and The Story of the Hippopotamus. So, <laughs> simple titles. They would eventually retire to a life of oil painting and tree farming, which sounds delightful. Yeah. Um, until their death, only five days apart in 1989. Wow. In an interview in the 1980s, Elma said, quote, We never worked for Walt Disney Productions. We only worked for Walt Disney. It was a personal thing between us and Walt. It seemed like we didn't feel like we were working for a big company, unquote. And judging from the comments that Walt made about the Malats, it seemed like this feeling was mutual. the most refreshing treat in all of Disneydom can be found in Adventureland, in the French colonial-styled storefront of the Sunshine Tree Terrace. Here, under the watchful eye of the orange bird, you can help yourself to the citrus swirl, a personal favorite of mine. The orange bird seems to be everywhere these days, on all sorts of merchandise and even festival items at Epcot, but this wasn't always the case. Until quite recently, our little orange friend had been long dormant, and even the current location of the Sunshine Tree is only a recent development. The Adventureland Citrus story begins in July of 1967, long before Walt Disney World opened. Disney executives and representatives of the Florida Department of Citrus sat down to discuss how they could take part in the Magic Kingdom. After many years of negotiation and analysis of just how the citrus industry should participate, an agreement was signed on October 22, 1969. This made the citrus industry the very first Walt Disney World corporate participant. The signing ceremony for this deal was quite official. Governor Claude Kirk was even present. No less a Disney magnate than General William Potter himself was on hand to represent the company, signing alongside Florida Citrus Commissioner O.D. Huff Jr. Uh, That is a great name for a commissioner. Oh man, that's incredible. Yeah, it feels like this is a uh, pay the piper type of deal. You know, it's like citrus is king in Florida. You got to get in with citrus to to do your little kitty park. Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> like one thing I learned in doing all this research is, I mean, you know that citrus was a big deal, but man, citrus was the big deal. It was the deal, that, that in space. It's just, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Just ask O.D. Huff Jr., 
when all was signed between O.D. and General Potter, General Potter uttered the immortal line, just to make it legal, I'll bring out Mickey Mouse. And Mickey emerged to bless the deal. I, I wish there was newsreel <laughs> footage of this somewhere. The uh, $2.2 million contract called for a $500,000 contribution to the cost of the Sunshine Pavilion and Enchanted Tiki Room, which is expected to cost $5 million in total. It also involved the industry's help in building the $500,000 Sunshine Tree Terrace, a facility to display and serve Florida citrus products. As part of the deal, Disney was expected to maintain an orange grove and a lounge for citrus industry guests. Don't know what happened to that orange grove, unless it was yeah. kind of that uh, Tiki Room pre-show was at least made reference to the orange grove. Uh, the 10-year deal required an annual participation fee of $170,000, and in turn, Disney was required to serve Florida citrus produce in all dining places in Walt Disney World. They have allowed us to citrusize Walt Disney World more than we had thought possible, said Duke Crittenden, the chairman of the Citrus Commission's Walt Disney World Committee, which had worked alongside Disney for more than two years putting together the deal. Duke Crittenden, another good name. As newspapers reported in 1969, as guests left the Tiki Room, quote, statues of Polynesian gods will talk about the values of citrus. <laughs> then visitors will come upon the Sunshine Tree Terrace, where Florida citrus products can be seen and tasted. The Sunshine Pavilion was officially dedicated on October 6, 1971, on what was dubbed Citrus Industry Day at the resort. Governor Ruben Askew was on hand to cut the ribbon. Man, they're pulling those strings. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I would ma major uh, 1980s miss on uh, making a citrus size VHS uh, workout video. You know? <laughs> exactly. Let's citrus size, folks, <laughs> with Orange Bird hosting. Yeah, that'd oh, be yeah, great. Definitely. As anyone but the most recent Walt Disney World visitors will remember, for the first 44 years of the resort's history, the food stand at the exit to the Tiki Room was called the Sunshine Tree Terrace. This was the home of the orange bird, where he sat perched in the limbs of the colorful orange tree. According to legend, the orange bird couldn't speak or sing, but instead communicated through thought bubbles. This was depicted in the sunshine tree by a small screen over the bird's head where his sunny thoughts were projected. The orange bird was the brainchild of Disney marketing guru Vince Jeffords, who sketched the first concept of what the bird might look like. And to be honest, it looks like something a five-year-old drew, but I'm not an artist either. This uh, image can be found, I believe, on the D23 website and... Uh, uh, if you ask me on Twitter, I'll tweet it at you because it is pretty great. <laughs> the orange bird had been unveiled in a ceremony on March 3rd, 1971, when he was introduced to citrus leaders and state legislators by the Florida citrus spokesperson, Anita Bryant. This unfortunate association stemmed from the fact that Bryant had been the public face of Florida Citrus for a few years already by that point, before her rather loathsome views became a matter of public record in the late 1970s, and she was eventually abandoned by the Citrus Commission in 1980 due to blowback from her rampant homophobia. Until that point, though, Bryant and Orange Bird were inseparable. 
She sang his theme song, The Orange Bird Song, for a souvenir 45 single which was handed out to guests at the park. The song and its B-side, Orange Tree, were both pinned by the legendary Sherman Brothers of Mary Poppins fame and beyond. There was also a full-sized LP, The Story and Songs of the Orange Bird, which debuted in 1971. It featured seven Sherman Brothers songs, as well as the story of the Orange Bird as narrated by Bryant. A booklet of full-color illustrations was included as well. Produced by Camarata, the story was adapted by Jimmy Johnson from a story by, who else? Vince Jeffords. It was the beginning of an Orange Bird boom. He appeared in commercials alongside Bryant, in print ads, and on merchandise across the state. He even made appearances in educational films and comic books about nutrition. His adventures took him far and wide, including the National Food Editors Conference in Chicago in 1971. There he unveiled a selection of citrus-themed dishes from Walt Disney World, including Cutlets of Sweetbreads Princess, Calves Sweetbreads with Asparagus and Grapefruit Hollandaise, uh, and uh, Crepes Ambrosia, which, of course, crepes. Crepes Ambrosia forever, man. Yeah. Uh, gotta have those crepes. Orange Bird was a welcome guest at a number of public events, including the Citrus Bowl and even a Naturally. four, of course, uh, even a four-day Citrus Palooza at the Lake Buena Vista Marketplace in 1976, which featured citrus food demonstrations, a celebrity orange juice squeeze-off, special forums about juice, I suppose, and guest appearances by Olympic athletes. It also featured appearances by the 1976 Citrus Queen, the astonishingly named Candy Up the Grove. <laughs> Candy Up the Grove. I never heard that name. No. Uh. No. Don't see those coats of arms in the uh, castle. No, you do not. <laughs> the Up the Grove family motto. Uh, Candy and the Orange Bird hosted complimentary orange juice tastings daily at the event. But there were rough spots along the way for Disney's citrus connection. In March 1971, the Orlando Sentinel reported a kerfuffle amongst California's citrus growers about the Orange Bird and Disney's new Florida connection. We are flabbergasted, said an unnamed California citruser. To put it mildly, we think it's outright disloyalty. We don't think it could have happened if Walt had been alive. He loved California citrus juices and drank nothing else himself. <laughs> and these people are cutthroat, these citrus guys. Yeah. This one, yeah. man, that's what I learned. They weren't messing around. I just love yeah. the idea of Walt with just like, a can of like California citrus juices. It's got like the map of California on it. Just like downing it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I drink nothing else. No. Uh, later in November of 1971, some Florida citrus growers and businessmen were publicly grousing about the Polynesian focus of the Sunshine Pavilion and what they saw as, quote, a lack of citrus emphasis. <laughs> <laughs> Which means what? <laughs> I don't know. 
Citrus emphasis. I mean, I feel like my life has a certain citrus emphasis, so I can understand. Uh, Don Richardson, a member of the commission, said that they were negotiating with Disney for different designs, whatever that means, saying, quote, we want something to emphasize citrus more. We want Orange Bird to spend more time on the job, he added. At the time, two additional air-conditioned Orange Bird costumes had been purchased at the cost of $2,000 each, the equivalent of $13,000 each in current dollars. Wow. Disney pushed, yeah, no kidding. Uh, Disney pushed back, saying that they had never before, quote, commercialized an attraction to the extent that we have in this case. I'm not sure how true that is. Perhaps we could ask the Kaiser Aluminum Pig or the Mighty Monsanto Microscope for comment <laughs> on that one, but... I want to know what an air-conditioned costume is. Yeah, I was curious about that, too. I, Especially in, like, 1971 technology, maybe they borrowed some of that astronaut tech. Right. And that's no, why. The, no air-conditioned costume. Maybe they mean, like, the uh, cooler packs they put on people sometimes. It's air-conditioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Air-conditioned. Who knows? There's a picture of Orange Bird walking around like. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know. I would love to know. Maybe that's why they had those big hats. Uh, I will point out, though, that they did have oranges surrounding the base of the Enchanted Fountain in the Tiki Room itself. So that was some representation. I think it's, I think it's time to bring that fountain back. Oh, bring on, back that on. Enchanted Fountain. Yeah. Yes. One of the things the commission wanted was more citrus dining opportunities across property. And boy, did they get that in spades. One popular offering in late 1971 was said to be a so-called orange crush. This might have actually been orange juice slush, a predecessor of the modern citrus swirl, which seems to have been a big hit in the early years. In April 1972, the commissioner said that the main complaint that they heard was that the two slush-making machines, which could fit into the Sunshine Tree Terrace, couldn't make enough slush quickly to keep up with demand, leading to some customers walking away disappointed. I, I, man, I know that feeling. Right, exactly. Absolutely. Especially when you walk up and the citrus swirl is gone. That's the worst feeling. Oh, yeah. Uh, also that April, the serving cups for juice and slush were plussed up from plain cups to cups featuring orange bird and the slogan, a day without Florida orange juice is like a day without sunshine. And that's got to stick it to the Californians. <laughs> yeah, really. In 1973, it was estimated that Disney sold around 4,000 slushes a day. At that time, 67 citrus items were being served at 14 different locations in the theme park and resort hotels. At least one venue in each land offered a citrus specialty, and boy, do these sound amazing. Aside from orange and grapefruit juices, the Sunshine Tree Terrace featured Tangerine Soft Freeze, a sherbet-like mixture of orange juice, tangerine concentrate, tangerine oil, and sweetener, an yeah, an orange juice bar on a stick, simple but effective, and a jellied citrus salad composed of broken orange and grapefruit segments, grapefruit juice, sugar, and gel. Mmm, yum, love that gel. Also on offer was tangerine cheesecake, citrus mm. tarts of heavy cream in an open shell, topped with orange sections and glazed orange sauce and the aforementioned Crepes Ambrosia, a delightful mixture of oranges, tangerines, marshmallows, and coconut dipped in heavy cream and rolled in, quote, a French pancake. Uh, yeah, sign mm. me up for all of that, man. I'm Yeah, I'll take it. I'll, I'll take, take it. it all. Take it all. 
Nearby, the Adventureland veranda served Fiji chicken orange chunk made up of fried chicken breast, Cantonese rice, Polynesian vegetables, egg roll, grated orange rind and parsley, topped with orange or tangerine segments. Mm. At the Tomorrowland Terrace, you could get a specialty hamburger plate with Florida citrus jellos and french fries, citrus tarts, and a special citrus salad containing orange and grapefruit segments topped with orange sherbet. And only the finest salads come topped with orange sherbet. That's right. That's right. Uh, Pinocchio Village House also offered the same hamburger plate, citrus tarts, and citrus salad. At the Liberty Tree Tavern in Liberty Square could be found Shrimp Florida. This combined pink Florida shrimp with diced oranges in sauce Louis. Another dish was Pate Maison Florida, composed of thin slices of homemade pate with orange rounds molded into each slice. Man, now we're talking. That's Ooh. some fanciness. That's super fancy. That's <laughs> so, a little too fancy. I wonder if that shrimp was fresh, you know, like oh, fresh shrimp. I wonder. Yeah, I bet it was. I bet it was. Yeah. It's a big deal back then. Yeah. Flown from the coast daily. Meanwhile, they could fly it right into the stall port. Uh, meanwhile, at the Crystal Palace, you could get cottage cheese jubilee salad consisting of cottage cheese mixed with tiny bits of oranges and pineapple as well as an orange Waldorf salad, a mixture of oranges, apples, and nuts. So lots of options there mm. for the consumer. In 1981, the Florida Citrus Commission re-upped their deal with Disney for another five years. This is when they also gained sponsorship of the Enchanted Grove in Fantasyland. But when the commission and Disney parted ways in 1986, the orange bird left his perch. The Sunshine Tree remained in all its glory until an unfortunate renovation in 2000 saw the removal of the tree and the establishment of a much more austere Sunshine Tree Terrace. Uh, it almost made it. It almost made it. It almost it made it made it so close to being untouchable. But yeah, yeah. But this was not the end of the Orange Bird story. In the new millennium, fans were surprised to see merchandise depicting the cute character popping up in Japan of all places. Somewhere that he had never been featured or promoted. But Japan knows what's good, I guess, so they went with it. In 2012, the unthinkable happened when the original Orange Bird figurine was restored and returned to a place of prominence in the Sunshine Tree Terrace. This was an exciting day. Uh, sadly, we didn't get the full orange tree back, but there was a nice display of orange crates with custom-made labels and some tikis looking on. Uh, this was a time of great rejoicing as it also saw the return of the citrus swirl after a long and unfortunate absence. A dark time when the Sunshine Pavilion inexplicably served just vanilla and chocolate soft serve. That's no good. You can't have that. That's a, that's a low point for citrusizing. Yes, that is. It needed to be citrusized, exercised. There was also a, a, a time in the middle of this period where Orange Bird was not at Disney, but still used by Florida Citrus and, you know, roadside stands and stuff, right? Yeah, and in the late 80s and even into the 90s and probably even beyond, I mean, I'm sure he lingers still in a lot of places. Uh, he was still used by Florida Citrus and in all sorts of roadside attractions and citrus stands. You would still see merchandise and T-shirts and stuff uh, long after he had left Disney. So, yeah, he kind of lingered in the culture still, which is great. 
But thankful he came back to Disney. Thankfully, he came back. Uh, it took a lot of behind-the-scenes maneuvering by some very dedicated individuals to restore these treasures, but we will be forever grateful. Mm-hmm. The orange bird hadn't been fully settled into his new roost, however, when more change came. In 2015, the Sunshine Tree Terrace switched places with Aloha Isle, another juice stand sponsored by Dole, which stood in the French colonial-style building outside the old Adventureland veranda. Since 1982, when it replaced the veranda juice bar, Aloha Isle had served a number of refreshments, including floats, pineapple spears, and the wildly overrated Dole Whip. Nevertheless, the old switcheroo was pulled, and the orange bird took up residence in his new smaller venue, where he continues to think orange thoughts and serve up citrus swirls to this day. Orange tree, is it just my wishful fantasy? Telling me there is something more to you. As we look back at the last 50 years of Adventureland, we find a land whose attractions have remained fairly static when compared to the rest of the park. But at the same time, it's a land which saw a major aesthetic shift halfway through its lifetime, one which changed the vibe of the entire area forever. And along the way, as with other lands, we've lost a number of unique shopping and dining experiences along the way. So let's head into the deep jungle and see what we can find in the bygone days of Adventureland. We enter Adventureland by the Crystal Palace on a bridge with a canopy with various flair atop it. A bridge that used to be raised up for the Plaza Swan Boats. A bridge that you can still feel and hear the strollers going over to this day in your mind. (laughs) Yes, you can. Uh, Now, originally this bridge was planned as an even grander entrance. A covered bridge in the French colonial style that would have blended perfectly as a transition from the Crystal Palace to the wilds of Adventureland. There's yet another great Herb Ryman painting of this to go along with the one that we mentioned for the entrance of Liberty Square with the windmill. I imagine budgets cut back these grand entrances, but man, it would have been something to see. Yeah, it's a really nice piece of piece of artwork. Uh, would have really brought you into that atmosphere right from the bat. Crossing the bridge just as today, you would have been met with the jungle on the left, though the waterway of the swan boats used would have been more clearly defined and a long meandering set of facades on the right. Adventureland is an architectural blend of all kinds of forms meant to represent the colonial era and various, quote, exotic cultures, encountering each other and blending into an overall style. This building on the right is dotted with all kinds of influences. The French colonial we mentioned, Caribbean, Asian, British colonial, 
and it all housed the Adventureland Veranda Restaurant, a true jewel of the park located where the Skipper Canteen is now. This restaurant was massive and sprawling. It took up a big chunk of real estate in the land and offered many different seating areas, including, uh, of course, actual verandas. We've mentioned Dorothea Redmond several times in relation to design, most recently with her Cinderella Castle mosaics and beautiful interior drawings of the Main Street Hotel, but Redmond was instrumental in illustrating and helping direct the interior and exterior of the Adventureland Veranda, and her illustrations, as always, are beautiful. Man, this place is something else. Yeah, the just the, the wood accents, the wood everywhere. It's the, the interior design of this period. They were just knocking it out of the park. They were so great, and this place had atmosphere to spare. Yeah, absolutely. At the Adventureland Veranda, you could eat shrimp tempura, sweet and sour ribs, Cantonese rice, Polynesian vegetables, or a Hawaiian hot dog baked in a special sauce. <laughs> Tiki punch for those who are thirsty. And the fresh shrimp, Michael, was really advertised as a specialty earlier on. Ah, there fresh, you go. Fresh shrimp. Uh, I imagine the Tiki Punch was also served at the Veranda Juice Bar, which we mentioned earlier. Uh, in 1977, though, Kikoman would take over the sponsorship of the restaurant and make its way into our hearts for years to come, Michael. This was a brand loyalty at its finest. Yes, and for companies that doubt the effectiveness of you know what they get out of sponsoring something at Disney... They're asking the wrong people because they should ask the people who grew up going to the parks and about their brand loyalty because this cemented Kikaman in my heart. Kikaman, and at the time, I didn't eat anything that would have remotely used soy sauce, but I <laughs> loved Kikaman despite the fact. And at the time when I eventually started eating food that used soy sauce, I have those fond memories of, of Kikaman brought, oh, brought to you by this place and its amazing music loop. This location would be home to various Asian-inspired food. Uh, a teriyaki burger, for instance, would be on the menu for years. The interior featured beautiful woodwork, which you mentioned, and a combination of styles that would be evident just like the outside architecture. But a distinctly Asian flair would appear in the signage to go along with the Kikoman partnership. Maybe those signs got you, Michael. Oh, the yeah, they definitely the did. The, the design of those were fantastic. Uh, Mike Lee over at Widen Your World has some fantastic pictures of the cast member costumes, which are green, turquoise, and black, kind of, uh, you know, a block print. They're just kind of the coolest cast member costumes I've ever seen. They kind of harken to the the color scheme of the Polynesian floors we mentioned in the Great Ceremonial House when we discussed that. But mm -hmm. Jealous of those. They look comfy, too. Now, unfortunately, the Adventureland Veranda was one of the first casualties of seasonal operation as far as the bigger restaurants go. This had been common for carts and food stands, but in 1993, the restaurant began to close during parts of the week and then closed the next year. Man, that year was a killer. Yeah, 1994. Brutal. Rough. This restaurant would remain closed, save some very peak seasons, or when another restaurant would be renovated. And it was just strange to see such a prominent part of Adventureland. You know, it's like the first huge bit is all the Adventureland veranda be completely closed to guests for decades until the Skipper Canteen would replace it. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't ask for a better placement 
like more prime placement in a land than it had. And especially in an era where Asian food was becoming more popular, less exotic and more popular, you'd think it would have been ready to pounce on that trend and they could have really been ahead of things. But I mean, it, this huge facility just shuttered for a long time. Yeah. It was always a treat on the rare occasions that would be open. I mean, sometimes Pecos Bill would be closed. They would open it. And I remember one grad night I worked in there handing out wristbands for guest relations. They would also open it for the very Merry Christmas party sometimes to give out cookies there. But it it was like looking at living history being in there because they hadn't updated it in so long. And that loop, like you said, it was top notch. It's probably one of my favorite park loops. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I listen to it all the time. As we venture further into the land, we first pass the Swiss Family Robinson Tree House on the left. This mercifully has been left mostly unaltered over the decades, except for the addition of many rather prominent new railings and nets in the last few years. The foliage, as with the rest of the land, has grown in as well. You can hardly make out the canal, which once so prominently carried the swan boats in a full loop around the treehouse. To the right of our forward progress, on the left-hand side of the breezeway to Liberty Square, we find the site of what might be the Magic Kingdom's first lost attraction, the Safari Club Arcade. This very short-lived arcade lasted less than a year before it made way for the Colonel Hathie Safari Club shop. The arcade had, unsurprisingly, a safari theme, featured lots of off-the-rack shooting games enclosed in cabinets that had been custom-made by Disney. Some blueprints for these machines were on eBay a long time ago, and I'm still kicking myself for not finding out more about them. So if you're the person who wound up buying them, drop us a line, because I'd love to see oh, them. Oh, yeah. yeah. As I mentioned, the location became a store in 1973. By the 1990s, it was called Island Supply, and for a while it had the same kind of merchandise you'd find in a nature company which was nice, but then it developed a sort of Margaritaville beach bum vibe, and in 2015 it became Sunglass Hut, which it remains today. But this wasn't the last chance to burn quarters and blast away in Adventureland. Soon after Caribbean Plaza opened, the Caribbean Arcade moved into a space on the west side of the Plaza del Sol Caribe, north of where the bathrooms are today. This arcade had similar types of shooting games, only this time with pirates, also had a fortune-telling machine and a vending machine where you could get those great pirate postcards with Mark Davis art. The arcade moved out in 1980 when the location became the site of Lafitte's portrait deck, photo op where your family could get their picture taken in pirate costume alongside mannequins that looked like characters from Pirates of the Caribbean. This was one of two souvenir photo locations in the park alongside the one on Main Street, and I can't believe this is something that they don't offer today. Seems like a... An obvious, yeah. an obvious thing does, to do for people. I agree. It does seem that way. Old-timey photo. I'm in favor of it. In any case, uh, by the mid-'90s, this location quit being a photo op. It just became a pirate merchandise annex called Lafitte's. By 1997, those years, man, the location had been walled up completely for use as a stockroom. Can I just say how cool I think that specific location would be for an arcade? I mean, yeah. the way those like little arches are, and it's kind of at the end. Oh, it'd be so cool. Yeah, nice, kind of, kind of dark and mysterious. Uh, yeah, it would be nice. Uh, really cool area for it. Torches on the wall. That'd be good right, stuff. Right. 
A surprisingly large number of Adventureland shops were walled off and abandoned in the purges of the late 1990s, and those which survived were mostly obliterated when the magic carpets of Aladdin was plopped in the middle of the land in 2001, uh, completely altering the scale, sightlines, traffic flow, landscaping, and theme of the area. I won't give a rundown of all the shops that were lost. There's a great exploration of that on Passport to Dreams that you should check out. But we find here similar themes to elsewhere. The shops that were lost in the 90s were those which sold unique showpiece merchandise, and smaller boutique stores had their walls knocked down to form larger department stores with more homogenous merchandise. The intriguing names of the shops hint at the exotic merchandise they housed inside. Traders of Timbuktu, Zanzibar Shell Company, The Magic Carpet, Oriental Imports Limited, Tiki Tropic Shop, and Tropic Toppers, among others. The stores were themed to a melange of influences from Southeast Asia, Oceania, and parts of Africa, but this perfect aesthetic balance was altered when Aladdin brought the cartoonish fantasy bazaars of Agrabah to the area. We also lost some really nice planters with a volcanic rock motif, some excellent shade foliage, and the very scenic terraced pools which once fronted the Sunshine Pavilion were cut far back. Jeff, the carpets really changed the vibe of the land. Yeah, and they also, I mean... First and foremost, these these shops and were just incredible interior design. They had so much, so many cool influences, and anything that you see at um, Animal Kingdom, even you know Epcot, it, it's like a combination of those interiors of World Showcase and and Animal Kingdom. I mean, really cool, detailed interiors of all kinds of influence. But um, so that's a shame, and then. You know, it just doesn't doesn't make any sense to put it right in the middle of there, and and then it chokes up the traffic flow, all of it. It's just, ugh. yeah, it's I, something. I wish I'd you could get that back. Love, yeah, love to see fly away permanently. And so strange that so many of these stores, with their lovely interiors, were just walled up to become you know offices or storage rooms, backstage areas. Right. Very, very right. odd. One of the other losses of the carpet invasion was the original Bawana Bobs. A merchandise, <laughs> film, and information kiosk named after a 1963 Bob Hope joint called Call Me Buana. <laughs> uh, one of the more inexplicable homages in the Magic Kingdom, this kiosk was actually a 1980s repurposing of the original Adventureland ticket booth. Despite the Bob Hope Association, it was a cute little booth. I was sad to see it go. Uh, it was removed, as I said, when the carpets came in. Now there's a merch cart at the front of the land, which has retained the Buana Bob's name. So maybe that was part of a contract for him to, uh, you know, dedicate the contemporary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I need a merchandise stand. Back in the middle of the shops, there was also a gazebo facing the plaza in front of the Sunshine Pavilion. And it was here that JP and the Silver Stars would perform regularly for guests. Now, we talked about this group on episode 12, but in brief, it was a steel drum band formed by Trinidadian Junior Pouchet, who had been involved in steel drum bands dating back to the 1950s. The band would be a staple ensemble of Walt Disney World until 2002, even releasing a 1976 LP titled Walt Disney World Adventureland Steel Band. Unfortunately, this structure would also be removed with the Adventureland shuffle to plop Aladdin down in the middle. It was a nice part of the architecture when it was there. 
Also performing in Adventureland was a safari band. In later days, this would manifest itself as the wacky combo featured in many a 1980s Disney parade and essentially Jungle Cruise skipper outfits. I don't know much about the first ensemble, though I do believe they appear in the 1975 special Welcome to Our World, decked out in white suits and pith helmets. More on that in a bit. Turning away from the splendid shops and music, we turn to the Sunshine Pavilion. Once the end of Adventureland when it opened in 1971 and clearly intended to be the weenie of the land. This is the home of the Tiki Birds. It's quite the architectural step up from its Disneyland counterpart. With an entrance underneath a towering Balinese pagoda, the attraction was housed in a Melanesian ceremonial house. So again, Disney is moving from movie sets in Disneyland, with the Enchanted Tiki Room resembling a tiki restaurant in smaller scale, to a much more literal life-size replication of real-world influences and lifts in Florida. This structure was actually called the Great Ceremonial House in some literature and papers pre- and post-opening, but I imagine that became a little confusing very quickly with the Polynesian Village Resort. Yeah, I was confused by that too. I I don't know when that went out of usage, but it was very odd that it was used for both places. Very strange. Right, right. Uh, one of my favorite little details that is always mentioned in the design of this building is that for the top of the pavilion, Imagineers used water buffalo to crown the building so it would blend into both Adventureland and into Frontierland where it would read as Longhorn cattle. Man, just the level of planning out the space when they were doing the first layout of the Magic Kingdom. Yeah, sight, sight lines really mattered and they were thinking about it. It's great stuff. We will visit the Tiki Birds in a later episode, but we must mention at least initially that another unique facet of the Walt Disney World version was the pre-show. That happened directly after the pagoda entry, just like today, in a semicircular covered amphitheater facing a beautiful Polynesian garden with a fountain. Man, I just want to be there mm -hmm. right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Preferably at night, but yes. Uh, just like today, Clyde and Claude welcomed guests into the Sunshine Pavilion with legendary voices provided by Dallas McKinnon and Sebastian Cabot, old baggy himself. Also notable was a Barker bird voiced by Wally Bogue, just like the original Disneyland version. Uh, this bird was sheltered above the entrance in his personal thatched roost. The original bird would be replaced by a toucan in a 1992 rehab that was named Artemis, which I find somewhat amusing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, alas, the Barker bird would disappear with the arrival of Iago and Zazu. And 1998's under new management retheme, which is now gone. And it's the best you can say about it. Along the way is the world famous Jungle Cruise, another topic worthy of a show in and of itself, and an attraction which has seen many alterations over the years, with many, many more yet to come, it seems. From the elusive giant frogs of its very early days to the good old days when skippers would fire an actual cap gun at the rampaging hippopotami. Something so iconic at the time that I can't believe it's so far gone now. The changes have ranged from small details to the extreme. Even outside the ride, there have been alterations. Tees, which once formed a drum circle, were converted around the millennium to spit water at guests. Spitting water being a dominant theme of that era. Yes, yes. The Oasis was a snack bar which served refreshments to guests who could linger on the deck outside the Jungle Cruise and watch the swan boats float by for a time. 
It too was eliminated in the last years of the 20th century. In 1997, the old swan boat right-of-way was taken over for perhaps one of the corniest monetization attempts of the era, Shrunken Ned's Junior Jungle Boats. These were pay-to-play remote-control boats that served to give the entire area a decidedly 80s carowinds feel. Sort of mini-golfish. Over the years, they tended to be broken and run down more often than not and were mercifully removed in 2012. Yeah, I just wish I had a time machine to go back and see when the swan boats uh, and the jungle cruise boats were going, you know, opposite each other around this bend. When you walk down to this plaza, you could see them going. Uh, this would be so cool to see. Yeah, that would be a, just a great place to sit with, uh, uh, you know, the torches on poles that they have in that area or did have in the area. I assume probably they still do, maybe. Um, but yeah, just to sit there and watch both both tracks of boats go by would have been so much fun. In late 1973, in an attempt to grow capacity and apocryphally due to an overrun of guest complaints, the Pirates of the Caribbean moved into the Magic Kingdom. Originally, this show was not going to be in Orlando due to the proximity of New Orleans, as the original Pirates was indeed housed in New Orleans Square at Disneyland. Maybe it was too close to the Caribbean too, and of course Florida had its own real-life Pirates of yore. Just too much pirate familiarity to go in there, Michael. Yeah, you, you know, you don't want to take ice to the North Pole That's and try right. and sell it there. Don't take your pirates to Florida. That's exactly. Uh, regardless, the pirates moved in to one of the most beautiful little lands in all of Disney, the sprawling Caribbean Plaza. Uh, this part of Adventureland is so large that it used to have its own specific signage and for all intents and purposes could almost be considered land in its own right. Courtyards with fountains and balconies looking down and wandering cobblestone paths leading past shops brought an intimacy of scale not familiar to most visitors of the Magic Kingdom and recalled the detail of New Orleans Square at Disneyland. This is a place you can get lost in and can spend a lot of time with the attraction, shops, and restaurant. I mean, those back little alleyways of Caribbean Plaza are just kind of feel like you're somewhere else. Yeah, this is a great area for fans of implied space, for stairways to nowhere and mysterious balconies and little lookouts and things. It is a fun little area for sure. And I miss that I miss that signage that you were talking about. No. That was some cool signage. No. As for the shops, as we saw in Liberty Square and Main Street USA, this was a place where the shops furthered the theme of the land. Shopping is entertainment. As a spring 1975 Vacation Land article says, quote, Although the Pirates of the Caribbean attraction is the focal point of the entire area, 
Guests who delight in the discovery of seldom-seen and hard-to-find specialty gifts will profit from visits to shops seemingly stocked with marvelous pirate treasure. When we first began planning the merchandise for Shops of Caribbean Plaza, explained one Disney buyer, we were faced with several problems. For example, where do we find items that reasonably would have been found during the pirate era? And exactly what items should we search for that would carry out the theme of Caribbean Plaza? Wow. Imagine that. (laughs) That is a far cry from where we are today. That's wild. So the search would be international, focusing particularly on Spain and Portugal, and result in an impressive array of merchandise over several shops. Uh, Exiting the Pirates ride via the speed ramp, which, incidentally, you would first find the Barker Bird that would go on to grace the outside of the Pirates attraction. That, the second Barker Bird of Adventureland, Michael, caused a bit of a uh, log jam, Uh, so they had to move him, but... That's a cool idea. Yeah. Um, But exiting that ride on the speed ramp, you would enter, as you still do today, the Plaza del Sol Caribe. Nowadays, this space is crammed with pirate gear, but it originally was a little bit more eclectic. One part Main Street Flower Market, one part Plaza de los Amigos in the Mexico Pavilion, and, of course, some pirate stuff. I remember the silk flowers and sombreros and of course they had the pirate coconut heads that as a youth frightened me to no end (laughs) yeah this whole area is an example of how much the philosophy has changed as it now seems kind of harder to get through and somewhat of a log jam trying to catch your eye and convince you to buy something it seems like the old layout was designed kind of to be aesthetically pleasing yeah a a little a place to wander around and discover things and not an not an impediment Right. Uh, to your right on the way out of the plaza was the House of Treasure, a nifty-looking shop that held a lot of pirate merchandise, including ships and bottles. Uh, this place was around until it became the Pirates League. I always enjoyed sticking my head in here. It felt like a very fancy place as far as decor went, and always had a lot of fun stuff to look at. And in later days, there was a, a New Orleans Square shop that really reminded me of the old House of Treasure. Um yeah, I I miss this place because it it had some neat things in it and not things of a nautical a nautical variety. That's right. That's right. Looking out across the walkway, there were two shops and a restaurant on the other side of the plaza. These two shops were specialty shops. One was another Arebus Brothers glass blowing concession called La Princesa de Cristal. Incidentally, that is also the name of the shop in the Mexican Pavilion at Epcot. There you get glass pirate ships, including one that was three feet tall with full rigging. So, wow. I wonder if anybody ever bid on that. (laughs) It's a good question. Those Arebus brothers are everywhere. They are. I'm telling you, they've had the concession locked down since the beginning. And much respect to them. That's right. Now, across the courtyard from the glass shop, so there's another little mini courtyard in there, was the Golden Galleon. A kind of one-of-a-kind store for nautical gear uh, featuring Scrimshaw. Scrimshaw, if you don't know, is uh, carved whalebone and teeth. Uh, According to the Vacation Land article, a host in the store said, quote, We're particularly fond of our collection of authentic Scrimshaw. It's very rare today, although during the 18th century it was quite common. Who 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 is this host? I mean... 
It's a serious good job alert. <laughs> yeah, really. Partners in excellence right there. There was also faux scrimshaw you could purchase if you weren't in the mood to pay the high price for authentic whalebone. Uh, but how about an authentic crow's nest? Uh, a ship's telegraph system? A brass diving helmet? And don't forget, for $900, you could get a real cannon. So stop by the castle, get your swords and snoods, and then grab a cannon on the way out, and you're ready for full-blown warfare when you get home. I'm telling you, just strap it to the top of the family truster, <laughs> and uh, I-95 will never be the same on the way home. Man, what a what a lineup. And guess what they would not sell today in the parks? Scrimshaw. <laughs> You're not going to see that anymore. I yeah. can pretty much guarantee that is incredible. What a, I don't remember this store at all. And I no, am either. truly yeah. bitter about it. I know. I mean, both these stores will be removed. in, as you guessed at this point in Adventureland, the 1990s, and they would be absorbed into dining locations. But yeah, I hate, I missed that one. That would be so cool to walk around in. Yeah. And, uh, see. I want to, uh, you know, ship like telegraph system, one of those <laughs> an- enunciator dials. That would be so great. Yeah. So uh, the neighboring Pecos Bill and uh, and now the Tortuga Tavern, they kind of took up this real estate eventually, but the courtyard's still there and you can see kind of the footprint of where it was. Tortuga Tavern opened as El Pirata y El Perico, a snack bar that I can hardly ever remember being open. This was like the first place to close down in seasonal. Like it was just always closed. This and Aunt Polly's, I feel like we're just always mm. closed when we went. Mm-hmm. It did have one of the best signs in the business, a little wooden sign with a pirate and a parrot. Another vaguely Carowinsian touch for the Magic Kingdom, Michael. Yeah, yeah it would be beside the... Uh, <laughs> ship ride that turned you turned you upside down That's inside right. the pirate ship right. i miss this sign uh el perico, el perico was a mysterious place because as you said it was always closed and when it was open it was like seeing a unicorn i vaguely remember having chili there they had some kind of chili yes. that i coveted i think they had a chili in a bread bowl at one point yes yes and i coveted it it was vaguely uh, vaguely windyish chili, yes. Uh, if I recall, uh, yeah. So I feel like at the end of the uh, '90s or the beginnings of the 2000s, somewhere in there, they started opening more often, and I felt like the menu was different every time you would go. They were just like yeah. trying things, like just yeah. seeing what worked. The, the, yeah, the chili, <laughs> the Perico Test Kitchen. That's right. The Steel Drum Band would also move down to Caribbean Plaza to an all-new bandstand directly opposite the Pirates' attraction. And this would be adjacent to the Fuente de la Fortuna, one of the many fountains in Caribbean Plaza that became planters in another odd decision made during darker times. Mm-hmm. Why? Why no fountains? Is it yeah, legal? I, I can't remember. I, I, if I, I can't remember. I think Foxy said at one point what it was, but I can't remember if it was a maintenance thing or what. But yes, it was, it was a product of darker days for sure. Yes, indeed. Caribbean Plaza would become the star several times during Walt Disney World's history as an event space. In 1975, to celebrate the opening of Space Mountain, guests gathered in Caribbean Plaza for a gala dinner event that is featured on the opening special 
Welcome to the World, which, I mean, you should watch that if you haven't. It's really something. Uh, tables line the sides of the main walkway through Caribbean Plaza, and a runway was constructed down the middle for the performers to use. Here we see the safari band performing, as previously mentioned, along with show host Lucy Arnaz, celebrating the so-called Space Mountain Eve with Tommy Toon and Lyle Wagner in his turtleneck and embroidered blazer combo. <laughs> the steel drum band is set up at the gateway to Caribbean Plaza facing Frontierland, and Lucy dons the Carmen Miranda fruit hat outfit for the finale. Wacky, nameless monkeys follow her around and perform shtick for her, and then, not to be outdone, Lyle performs the song Yellowbird with a ton of folks in chicken suits clucking on balconies and following Lyle through the crowd. We see Fantasia ostriches and, of course, the egg walk-around character. And as Lyle begins to play Yellowbird mournfully on the harmonica, we see Donald in the background grooving in his sombrero. Michael, this is a must-watch for our live stream event. Completely bizarre. It really is. And people, you know, search for their ideal Disney costume characters, you know, the rare characters to mark off their checklist and find their favorites. I want to I want to bring back the egg walk around character. I know. It, what, yeah. What happened to the walk around egg? Can we get a picture at Camp Mini Mickey with the egg? I mean, that's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a natural for Mickey's Toontown Fair. Yeah. Oh, gosh, there are so yeah. many places the egg would fit in. That's right. And that's right. Uh, you know, there's the egg, the cracked egg variant. Uh, it's, yeah, but this. The monkeys and the chickens and the it's 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 a lot. It's a lot to deal with. It's a whole lot. Yeah, but I mean, Caribbean Plaza looks good, so you gotta get. Yeah, yeah it does. Uh, this wouldn't be the only time Caribbean Plaza would wine and dine, folks. Uh, during the International Chamber of Commerce World Congress in October 1978, which I always seem to bring into this podcast, uh, plans were initially made to have dinner for. 2,500 delegates and guests in a tent on the future site of the Asian hotel where the Grand Floridian now sits. Instead of doing that in the empty, you know, square of land, Disney decided to change that plan and move them into Caribbean Plaza where they could dine under the stars just as Lucy and Tommy Toon did three years prior. So that wraps up this first half of our trip through Adventureland. Uh, Michael, we've got 
Got a few more things to talk about before we leave Adventureland this time for the next episode. That's right. There's always another adventure around the corner for sure. Yeah, so I'm excited to be back and talk about a couple of uh, people who had a oversized influence on Adventureland and some other fun stuff. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Michael, it's a time where we check in with our Patreon subscribers, see if we have any new signees. Yes, we do, as a matter of fact, have some new members of the Order of the Chili Bowl helping us make our episodes, people interested in tuning into that special monthly live stream to see what we've got going on. Now, new this month, we have Brendan, Bobby, Chad, Ryan, and Lauren. All welcome members, and we really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your help in making this podcast come about. And if anyone is interested in taking part, you can always check in at patreon.com slash progress city USA. Yes. And we thank you all for participating. Uh, Michael, you mentioned that live stream. When is our next live stream going to be? Well, our next live stream will be May 29th, 2021, where we will be going into what else? Adventureland to take a look at the creation of the land, maybe some of its past offerings, and who knows what else? You never know what we're going to come up with. Yeah, those are always a lot of fun. Uh, and consider signing up before that, and we'll send you the link. You can join us on YouTube and uh, participate in the chat, which is fun for us to hear from you directly. Yeah, that's that's the really the the cherry on top for us is actually getting to talk to everybody and just see what's happening out there. That's right. Uh, you can also talk to us on Twitter. Uh, Michael's at Progress City USA and I'm at Jeff G. Crawford. And you can also email us at podcast at progresscityusa.com. Please consider rating and reviewing us on any of your podcast platforms. Uh, we love the feedback. Any kind of contact with you is good contact. With all that said, we will sign off for today and see you again right back here in Adventureland next week. So from all of us to all of you, take care. We'll see you soon. Right now, it's time to go. Remember, everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. They call it progress, progress. Our time is at an end. We'll be seeing you again next time. And progress, progress. Meet in Progress City, USA. You've been listening to the Progress City Radio Hour. Created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at ProgressCityUSA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. On the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour.
call it pride.